The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. In the cross. In the cross is the word the New Testament uses for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the most important work known to humanity, the cross. That's the substitutionary death of the blessed Savior on behalf of sinners. And it is the only thing that provides true peace in this life. The very appropriate song because the title of today's sermon is The Gospel of Jesus. The Gospel of Jesus. And before I get to the Gospel of Jesus, specifically, I would encourage you, if you have a Bible to turn your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5. just want to read one verse there. But good morning to you all. It's always a blessing to see God's people gathered together for worship. And now it's our time to learn from God through his word, through the scripture, as the Holy Spirit illuminates the truths on the pages of scripture so that we can understand it. And he also, uh, the Holy Spirit, enables us to apply it directly to our life. So he is our teacher. We thank him for that ministry. And greetings to all of you, those here in the sanctuary. And there's a big crowd out there in the courtyard. Saints, great to see you. Beautiful weather God's blessed us with again. And no doubt we still have some folks uh, today watching live streaming as well. So welcome to you all. Let's Follow along and learn together from God's word on the priority subject, the gospel of Jesus. I start with 1 Peter 5, 8. The apostle Peter wrote this epistle a good 30 years after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And actually this epistle written not long before Peter himself died, he was executed murdered for his faith, murdered for being a a Christian, for being a preacher of Jesus and biblical truth. And he gives this exhortation to fellow believers as he's trying to encourage Christians. So this is, if you're a Christian, this is for you. This is an imperative or command for you and for me. It's a great reminder. He says, be of sober spirit. That's a command, be of sober spirit. What does that mean? Literally, get your thoughts in order. So he's commanding us regarding our thought life, how we think. And we need reminders like that on a regular basis because it's easy to get lazy, foggy in our thinking, muddled in our thinking. Peter knows that. He had that trouble as well. Be of sober spirit. Get your thinking in order so you can think on truth. In addition to that, be on the alert. Literally means wake up. Do not... Allow yourself to lull into a spiritual stupor of being content and not paying attention and not on guard. Be a sober spirit, be on the alert. Why? Because your adversary, your enemy, if you're a Christian, you have an enemy, a supernatural enemy, an evil and wicked, persistent enemy. That's Satan. He's real. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, present tense, continually prowls around, nonstop, and forevermore. While you sleep, he does not. He's your enemy. It's very personal. He hates you. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, seeking a life to destroy. If you're a Christian, you're the number one candidate. If you're a Christian, you've got a target on your back. You have an enemy. He wants to destroy your life in every area of your life. Peter, thank you for that reminder. How do we fend against that, Peter? Well, he gave us the secret. It's get back to your thinking. Get your thinking in order. Think right. Think objectively. Think on truth. Don't be dissuaded by... False thinking, or don't run your life by emotion and reaction to the circumstances. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Jesus 
said that, and so that's what I want to highlight today on the gospel of Jesus. I want to call us back to the basics and the fundamentals of Christianity on the priority truth, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I want to do it from the perspective of fulfilling the mandate from Peter. We need to get our thinking in order. We need to wake up. We need to beware of Satan. He's your greatest enemy. You should be aware what your enemy is up to all the time. In light of that, Christian, when was the last time you even thought about Satan or devil as a real entity in your life? If it's been a while, that's a problem. If it's been a while, you're probably losing. So thank you, Peter, for this reminder. Beware of Satan. So number one question is, when was the last time I even thought about the fact that I have this supernatural, invisible, all power, or not all-powerful, but very powerful enemy who's got one goal in mind, that's to destroy my life. Then there are follow-up questions to that. What is his strategy? Okay, Peter, I need to be aware of him and cautious and safeguard and prepare and defend against, but you've got to know his strategy. We've talked about that before. What are the strategies of Satan? How is he destructive and accomplish his nefarious will? He's got very specific strategies. We know those. If I were to ask you, what are some of his tactics? No doubt some of you would say that Satan deceives. He's a deceiver. By deception, that's how he works, by deception. And that's true. It's the main one. He's a deceiver. So be aware of his deception. Well, how else does he operate? Because there's more ways than that. It's not just deception. He also creates doubt. So you've got deception and doubt. He causes us to question God's word, question what we know to be true, question our salvation, question the sufficiency of Christ's death for you, question the sufficiency of the Spirit of God who lives in you, question the sufficiency of Scripture as though it can't answer all the questions of life. That's doubt. So that's how Satan operates. By way of deception, by way of doubt. Those two methods are subtle, not always easy to see. But then there's a third way Satan operates, and that's just overtly and directly, and that's devastation and destruction. He is the destroyer. And that's another outright tactic that he uses. Through devastation and destruction, it comes in many forms. So we're all familiar with those. We talk about those. We've taught on those. And there's one more that I wanted to highlight today, and that has to do with this whole sermon. And that one of the ways that Satan operates successfully in the lives of God's people and in the church is by way of not just deception, doubt, and destruction, but also distraction. Distraction. That's probably the most harmless one of all. But I look around the Christian world, locally, regionally, nationally, and universally in the last year plus, and one thing you can say, if you're paying attention, is the church of Jesus Christ is distracted for a lot of reasons. A lot of the events going on in the world, not to mention the things going on in our own personal lives, but what's going on in the world, and then being bombarded with distractions via our technology and media. It's been ramped up and amped up like never before. We are distracted. And if you're distracted by something, you must focus on that thing, and you're not, you don't direct your attention and focus on the other thing. So this is basic to how Satan operates. He, he distracts us from the right things, from the priorities. Jesus knew this. Jesus talked on this. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 10, verse 41 and following. Remember when Jesus was in the home in Bethany of uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and they were having worship time, Bible study, interaction, and fellowship. Mary was focused. Mary was fulfilling the mandate of Peter, 1 Peter 5, 8. She was of sober mind. She had her thoughts in order. She was at the feet of the master, listening to the word of God from Jesus, who is the word of God. And she was undistracted by anything else. Her sister, Martha, was distracted. She didn't have her mind in order. She's being driven by the circumstances. She was reacting to 
things around her that bothered her. And so her mind was led away. It was distracted. And so her mind, literally, her thoughts were taken off the most important thing, which was Jesus, and put on things that were not as important. Some things very important, but not as important. In other words, she didn't have the right priorities. She suffered as a result. Jesus rebuked her and literally said, Martha, Martha. It was stern. Martha, Martha, to her face, eye to eye, in public. That's a rebuke. And it was very simple. And he admonished her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. You know what that means? It literally means, Martha, Martha, you are distracted. You're distracted. You have your eyes off focus. They're on the wrong thing. And the nature of the specific two Greek words, you are worried. That has to do with your mind and how you think. You're worried. And you're thinking the wrong way. Worry is thinking the wrong way about the future. It's a lack of faith. But it's all in the mind. He's challenging the way she thinks. You are worried. And then he said bothered. It's another very specific Greek word. Again, it has to do with the way she thinks. She's fearful. She literally, it means terrified. Two things. He basically said you're distracted. You're thinking on the wrong things. You're thinking on worry, things you can't change. You're thinking on you're terrorized as a result of your wrong thinking. You're not looking to the right source. Get your thoughts in order, basically, is what he was telling him. And he's very specific. Well, get my thoughts in order on what? Well, he commended Mary, his, uh, Martha's sister. Well, she's thinking the right way. She's not distracted by so many things that you shouldn't be thinking upon and ruminating on and meditating on and running over over again and again and again and again. And that creates worry and anxiety and fear and trouble in the soul. That's what she was doing. That's what we do. Stop doing that. That's what Jesus said. Stop doing that. And focus on the right thing. Think on the right thing. What is that? Well, only one thing. Mary's doing the right thing, and she's thinking about only one thing which is necessary. Only one thing which is necessary. That means this is the priority. Think on the priority thing. Do not be distracted. Only one thing is necessary. What is that, Jesus? He tells us it's the good part. The good part. Don't think on things that are bad that worry you. Don't think on things that are bad that terrorize and trouble your inner soul. Think on the one thing that is good, that is me, that is Christ. That's the point. That's why we're going back to the basics, the gospel of Jesus. So I want to challenge everybody here, particularly starting with believers and our members Are we thinking on the right thing? Have we been distracted? Stop, pause, and evaluate your life. You're thinking the last week, the last month, the last year. You're thinking. Your actions, your priorities, how you spend your free time, how much time you spend looking at the headlines, watching the news, whatever it is, where you're giving your attention, your energies, your investments, what troubles you, what worries you, what concerns you, what's a priority, what's a goal. It's all right here. Jesus were here today, would he take Martha, Martha out and put your name in there? I confess, he'd say that to me. And he wouldn't say, Pastor Cliff, Pastor Cliff. He'd say, Clifford, Clifford. (laughs) Just like my mom used to do. You were worried and bothered about so many things. But instead, you should be only thinking about one thing, the necessary thing, the good part me let's do that let's focus our attention on the gospel of jesus christ and uh, we need to because i don't want to make any assumptions actually let me go flip your bible read one more verse um matthew chapter 7 i can just read it listen carefully Uh, matthew 7 verse 22 jesus is talking to his disciples probably big crowd preaching, teaching, just finishing the Sermon on the Mount. And then here's his conclusion. And he's talking about the end of days, the end of the world. Judgment day, really, because he says, many will say to me, on that day, on that day. What day? He doesn't say specifically. We know it's judgment day. It's at the end. 
This is the day where every soul will have to be confronted by Jesus Christ as the risen Lord, the creator, the savior, and judge of every of the universe, but the judge of every soul. And he says, many on that uh, will say to me on that day, that's the context, the end of the age. Every one of us has to confront that day. Nothing else will matter. All the distractions and goals and frivialities of this life, they won't matter on that day. And no one escapes that day. And it's going to come like that. And it's frightening. It's a good reminder. Uh, verse 21, Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me on that day, judgment day, Lord, Lord. Now, there will be many, many who say, Lord, Lord, meaning they profess to know Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, I know Jesus. Oh, he's the Lord. I pray to God. I go to church. Many, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So not everybody on judgment day who claims to know me is going to be allowed to live with me in heaven for all eternity. They will be consigned to hell. Well, who are these people? Well, there, there are many, and we don't know their motives or what they're thinking, but this is just a reality. That many are going to claim to be Christians and cry out to Jesus as Lord. And here's what Jesus says to them. Um, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, do religion. We got religion. It's what we do. problem is they weren't thinking about what Jesus did, his death and resurrection on the behalf of a sinner. Got the wrong focus. Verse 23, and then Jesus will expose it all and he will say, I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. You were never a believer. You were never a Christian. You were never born again. All that time you spent going to church, listening to Bible sermons, quoting my name, praying to me, acting like a Christian, pretending to be a Christian or being deceived, thinking you were a Christian when you were not, doesn't matter. It wasn't real. Just like Judas, never saved. And they will literally be deceived, literally shocked. Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And then Jesus will dismiss them, and then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, practice wickedness. Their nature has never been changed. They never knew Christ. Frightening. Every person today who claims to be a Christian needs to frequent this passage and ask God to search your soul. Not to always be living in fear, but just to make sure you got the basics down. And that's what I want, that's why I want to do the gospel of Jesus. Let's go back to basics. Let's just talk about the gospel. Because there's a lot of confusion about the gospel. Even in the Christian world and among Christians. So that's what we're going to do. Before we actually look at the main passage on the gospel, um, I got a little, in light of uh, Paul's exhortation, examine yourself, 1 Corinthians 11 and also in Corinthians at the end of his book. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Evaluate your thinking. We need to do that on a regular basis because we are short-sighted, we have blind spots, we can be deceived. It's, we are easily entangled in our own sin. Second, it's second nature. So we need to evaluate ourselves. And I, I want to help, this is for all of us, including me. I want to ask just 10 questions real quick. It's true and false, true and false questions. Yes or no? Yes or no? You don't need to write out the question, but write a true or, or a T or an F on your paper or just try to remember it. See how you do. I call this the gospel quiz. The gospel quiz. It's just 10 questions. Pastor Cliff, why do you always ask questions? Well, because I would ask you a question in, in answer to that question. Who was the greatest Bible teacher there ever was? Jesus. Did Jesus ever ask questions in the midst of his teaching and preaching? All the time. The greatest teacher there was. Why? Why ask questions? Because many, there's many benefits to that. It makes us think. That's what it does. It makes us think. Sometimes a question will just wake you up from your stupor when you're sitting there in your chair falling asleep to the boring preacher. But it does make us think. So it's a masterful pedagogical tool in teaching. And Jesus was the master. Just go through the Gospels and list all the questions he asked various people while he was preaching and teaching. From the crusty old legalistic Pharisees to disciples that he absolutely loved. So that's what we're going to do. Here we go. We're going to move quickly. 
True or false? The gospel quiz. Number one, the gospel is something believers do. True or false? Number two, the church needs to be the gospel to the world. True or false? Number three, God's love is unconditional. True or false? Number four, the gospel in the Old Testament differs from the gospel in the New Testament. True or false? Number five, the kingdom of God is not directly related to the gospel. True or false? Number six, the gospel is a mystery. Number seven, the gospel can save, but it does not regenerate. True or false? The gospel can save, but it does not regenerate. Number eight, Paul learned the gospel from the 12 apostles. True or false? Number nine, social justice is part of the gospel. True or false? Oh, I got a reaction on that one. Number 10, people can be saved today without hearing the gospel. Or people can be saved today without hearing the gospel preached. True or false? Okay, let's grade the quiz, shall we? And to me, I'll just let you know, none of these are controversial. If you know the Bible, these are they're no-brainers. For the Christian, these should not be controversial. I know that because i got a Bible verse for every single one. All the questions were false. Except for number six. Number six was true. The gospel is a mystery. You should have put true. How do I know that? Because Paul said, quote, the gospel is a mystery, end quote. What it says. Question is, what does the word musterion, mystery, mean? Number seven was kind of interesting. The gospel can save, but it does not regenerate. That actually can be kind of controversial for those Christians who say that the work of regeneration comes before belief, and regeneration comes, and then you believe, and then you're saved. And then, unfortunately for them, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 15, he says that the gospel regenerated them upon belief. So basically he equates regeneration with salvation. So if you have questions about that and you don't like the answers because you had some more truths on there, would love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email. Or maybe in our study we can clarify uh, some of those questions for you. So with that... Uh, let's move on to the gospel. You can have your finger in 1 Corinthians 15 because we'll end up there specifically. But just a few more preliminary notes on the gospel. Again, I am assuming nothing. Coming into the sermon, I was thinking, you know, we need to go way back to basics. And I need to talk in language that's not church Christianese, churchese, uh, assuming anything. But pretend I'm talking to an adult who's not grown up in the church, never read a Bible, never heard a sermon. They know absolutely nothing. So that's where we need to start. Because we need to be crystal clear on this, the gospel. To make sure, to the best of our ability, that we don't have people we know ending up in Matthew chapter 7 shocked from the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, you know what, I never knew you. So the, let's talk about the gospel. First, I want to tell you some things that the gospel is not, and then I'm going to expand on that a little later. But just up front... And I know this just from years of teaching, teaching Sunday school classes, and then our membership classes, where the, the main question we ask people who want to join our church is, what is the gospel? And we don't always get the clearest answers. But here are, com here are common answers where people are confused about the gospel. So what I'm saying here is what, uh, the following answers are not the gospel. This is not the gospel I'm talking about. This is not the gospel that saves the gospel is not the Bible. Uh, the gospel is not the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I am not talking about that. The gospel is not the church. Here's a biggie. The gospel is not something we do. It has absolutely nothing to do with I, what I do or you do. And the gospel is not something we are. We'll expand on that. Now, in addition to that, I just want to give you three statements. 
The first would be what I say is the simplest distilled description of the gospel. So not the content of the gospel, not even really a definition of the gospel, but summarizing in the clearest, most simple terms that I can. So I'm calling it a description. What is the simplest description of the gospel? And I would propose this. The gospel is a fill-in-the-blank. What might you say? Be interesting. Here's my answer. The gospel is a message, period. That statement alone clarifies a lot of stuff. It raises a lot of questions, but it sure does clarify a lot of stuff. That's a description, not a definition, not a delineation, a description. The gospel is a message. Question, is that what you said in your head when I said that? The gospel is a fill-in-the-blank. It's a message. The second statement I want to make, this would be moving on from a description of the gospel to a definition of the gospel. Again, this is not the content of the gospel. This is not a delineation of its elements, just a definition. It's a little different. So what might be the simplest definition of the gospel? Here's what I came up with. It is a finite message about an infinite person and his finished work. It's not just a message, it's a finite message. It's a simple message, a complete message, a message that we can actually wrap our arms and our brains around. It's not incomprehensible. It's not beyond us in terms of understanding it, articulating it, preaching it, teaching it, being saved by it. That's why it's, it's a finite message. God has accommodated to us as finite, fallen human beings to give us a message we can actually understand and articulate. So it's a finite message, and it's a simple message. It's a short message, it is, but it's a complete message. Even though it's small, simple, short, few words can define it thoroughly, it is a complete message. So the gospel is a complete message, and therefore the gospel is a sufficient message. It is sufficient, the content of it, to meet the greatest needs of humanity. So it's a sufficient message. It's an, also an immutable, unchangeable message. It never changes. The gospel in the Old Testament virtually was the same in the New Testament. We've received more information specifically through pro progressive revelation over time, but the gospel existed in the Old Testament. Uh, Paul said that in Galatians 3. He said that uh, Scripture preached the gospel to Abraham in Genesis 12, which was about 2100 B.C. The, message, the gospel doesn't change, it's, and it's always good news. It's God the Creator, God the Holy God, God the just God, talking to a fallen, pathetic, lowly, uh, lost sinner, and this good Creator God gives that sinner good news. And that's what God in the Old Testament did, Elohim and Yahweh, to Abraham, the pagan idol worshiper, gave him good news. That he could know God and be saved and have his sins forgiven. So it's an immutable, unchangeable message. It's a universal message, very important. It applies to everyone on planet Earth, all, almost 8 billion of us. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, where you came from, your background, uh, what country you live in, what your former religion was, what your, form, what your religion is now. It's a universal message. It's for everybody. Paul made that clear. One message, one size fits all. Oh, you can't share the Christian message uh, with Hindus. They won't understand it. Really? Yeah, because they don't understand the concept of sin. Really? Yeah, they do. How do I know that? Because the Bible says so. There's common ground with everybody because we're all made in the image of God. Every human being has a conscience that God gave them. So it's a universal message that even applies to Hindus despite what some people are saying. Or another well-known evangelical author who says, well, you know, we can't use our westernized Christianity gospel of the Jesus out of the New Testament with Chinese people because they're Eastern and Eastern-oriented, and they don't understand these categories and concepts like sin. Yeah, they do. It's a universal message. Jesus said, preach it to the whole world. As a matter of fact, he said to every creature. And I will say this, the gospel message is also a unique message. It's unique. It is unique to Christianity. It's unique to the Bible. It's unique to Jesus. Is there another religion on planet Earth that has the gospel? No. 
Is there another philosophy or ideology outside of Christianity on planet Earth or in history of the world that has the gospel? No. In other words, no one has good news save Christ and his church and his word. It is a unique message. Okay, so I gave you a description. The gospel is a message. Then I gave a definition. It's a finite message about an infinite person, that is Jesus, and his finished work. It is done. It is finished. Tetelestai, he said. It is done. It's accomplished. Completely. Totally sufficient. And then last, a delineation of the gospel. What are the actual contents of the gospel? That's where now we turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And let me take you there and let's read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through, I'll go to verse 5. So when you, when people inquire about membership here at our church, at Grace Bible Fellowship, we have prerequisites to become a member of the local church. And we believe all, every one of those prerequisites is in the Bible, so we're not making them up. It's not man-made stuff. It's not human or church tradition. Well, number one prerequisite to become a member of the church is you have to be a born-again Christian. You must be born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. Number two, you need to be baptized after you became a Christian. That's the clear example of the Bible. Peter said that in the book of Acts. Believe, repent, believe, get saved, and then be baptized. Baptized means to immerse. And then they were, quote, added to the church, end quote, says the book of Acts. Then number three, to follow up on that, we ask the person to articulate the gospel. Define the gospel, explain the gospel. What is the gospel? You say you're saved, you say you're a Christian. You can't be a Christian unless you believe in the gospel. So what's the gospel? You should know the gospel if you're saying you're a Christian. Pretty basic. So please, in a nutshell, define the gospel. That's, so those are pretty much the main prerequisites to getting baptized and then becoming a member of our church because they're right out of the Bible. And people get confused on what is the gospel. And I don't blame them because... Maybe a lot of the teaching that they've had over the years and different books and different teachers and people are saying different stuff and making the simple gospel foggy and unclear. Here's, I'll give you an example. Sit down with someone. Okay, uh, you're a Christian? Yes. Okay, so you believe in the gospel? Yes. Okay, then explain the gospel. What is the gospel? And some people struggle. And here's one of the most... I've noticed over the years and the 14 years that I've been sitting through these interviews as people join the church, this is probably... Uh, the number one uh, answer that people give that I think you don't need to say that because that's technically not part of the definition of the gospel. But I usually don't say that, but I understand why they're saying it. I understand why they're saying it because I used to do it. I used to do it because I was taught to do it. Then one day I realized, wait, that's not in the gospel. That's not the gospel message. So here it is. They'll say, well, the gospel is that... Um, in the beginning, there was Adam and Eve, the first two people, and then they disobeyed and they sinned, and God cursed them, and they were separated, and they faced physical death and eternal death unless God intervened and by His grace. And He did that by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, from heaven down to earth to live a perfect life and to die as a substitute on the cross and to absorb the wrath of God on behalf of them as sinners. And so God punished Jesus instead of punishing them, even though they deserved to be punished by God the Creator. And so Jesus was literally their substitute... And he was the God-man, and he was perfect, 100% God, 100% man. So he's the perfect substitute, absorbing the infinite amount of God's hatred and wrath for sin. And then, in accordance with Scripture, Jesus, he died, and then he was buried, because that's what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. And then he was raised again on the third day, as Scripture predicted. And then he went back into heaven, and he reigns on high as the Savior, and he's literally calling all sinners to repent of their sin, turn to him, and be saved, believing that he is the God-man who died in their place as a substitute in fulfillment of Scripture. And he's the only one that can save them. And if you believe that and continue on and doing good works and stop smoking cigarettes and stop cussing and go to church as often as you can, then you can be saved. Now, that was all really good stuff until the very end. When after really the gospel, they added that addendum they didn't need to. If you keep on and continue 
and stop smoking cigarettes and stop cussing and start going to church and attend as frequently as you can, then you can be saved. So that is the number one thing that I see by Christians. So really, you know what they're doing? They are adding to the gospel. You don't need to say that last couple sentences. The gospel is all about Jesus. It has absolutely nothing to do with us or really our behavior. It's all about Jesus. So hopefully we'll, we'll clarify that. So let me read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. And, and another question I always ask is, okay, so where in the New Testament, actually where in the Bible is the one place, the one chapter, the one passage that defines the gospel clearly, completely, succinctly? And the answer I'm looking for is 1 Corinthians 15 because nowhere else in the Bible do we have the, the gospel explained in terms of a definition? Paul literally says, I make known to you the gospel, verse 1. This, literally, this is the gospel. I am about to define for you the gospel. I'm going to tell you it's all of its contents and what it is. Nowhere else in the Bible do we have a Bible passage like this, a definitional statement. There are times in, in Scripture where we'll see that where the apostle, the writer, God himself, states a definition, a truth in terms of a definition, like uh, God is holy. It's a definition. God is a consuming fire. God is light. It's like a definition. And here it is with the gospel. It's not one element of the gospel. It's the entire contents summarily stated in about one sentence. Now I make known to you, brethren, these are believers already, Paul planted this church in Corinth. He pastored that church in Corinth. He's departed, and now he's reminding these believers, professing believers, of what the gospel is. So even professing believers need to be reminded of the most basic thing about the definition of the gospel. Don't be confused. The Galatians got it confused. The Corinthians got it confused. Now, I make known to you the gospel, and then there's a parenthesis here um, where he talks about the effects of, of the, the conditions and the effects of the gospel. The definition prosper up, uh, proper of the gospel begins in verse 3. So the rest of verse 1 and verse 2 is kind of a parenthesis. It's a little bit of a break. It's a background explanatory information. It's not part of the definition. The gospel is, and then we'll pick up in verse 3 and 4 and explain what the gospel is. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel... The gospel which I preached to you when I was here in Corinth. Remember, I came, never been here before, and you guys were total pagans? Unless, of course, there were some Jews in a synagogue, but the majority of people were Gentiles and Greeks who were complete total pagans, probably never even heard anything about the Old Testament or Jesus in particular. And Paul comes into town as a church planner, preaching, evangelizing. People respond, people get saved. He plants the church, he establishes the church. That's what he's talking about. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. Remember when I came and I preached the gospel. Uh, and the church, you as believers, which also you received. Actually, a better English translation is took. Uh, the gospel which also you took, you grasped, you, de you deliberately owned it, you embraced it. It's not this passive receiving. It's this active latching onto and owning it. This is mine. Paralambano. It's a compound word, and it is emphatic. You enthusiastically embraced it as your own. That's what the word means. It's, and it's a very personal term. When you look that word up, it's used about 50 times in the New Testament. Almost every single one of the 50 times that word is used, where it says received in verse 1, and I'm saying it should be took. The way it's translated is, take the young child Jesus with you and go to Egypt. Or Jesus took Peter, James, and John. That's usually how it's used. Very personal, very deliberate, very proactive. So the gospel I preached to you, you understood it, you took it, you welcomed it, you received it, you made it your own, and as a result, in which also you stand, you have stability in life as a result of embracing, believing in, accepting the gospel. And that is the foundation, the stability in your life, if you truly believed it, because you are born again, you're a new creature, you know God. Because if you're not a, a believer, if you're not a Christian, you don't have any place to stand. You have no stability in your life. Your world will daily be rocked. By the events of this world and the sin in your own heart. Not so with the Christian. It is by which you stand. 
So he gives some qualifications here, by which also, verse 3, you are saved. That's what the gospel does. What does the gospel do? When it is embraced, believed, and understood, it saves. It saves souls. It turns a sinner into a saint. It transfers someone from the kingdom of Satan himself into the kingdom of his beloved son. It is supernatural. It changes people. It's the only thing that changes people. If you believe in the gospel, by which also you are saved. That is another condition. If you hold fast. The word, if you hold fast to the word, if you persevere, if you continue in your faith, and you will continue in your faith, you will persevere in your faith if your faith in the beginning was real and legitimate. If you're not one of those three bad soils that was not sincere, that was not deceived, that was legitimate. So let me say again, which also I preached to you this gospel, unless you believed in vain, and that's possible. You believed with emptiness. You believed in a hollow way. You believed in a way that was not efficacious. You, you said you believed, but it didn't change you. It wasn't real belief is what he said. It's a counterfeit faith, unless you believed in vain. And that can happen a lot of ways. What's vain belief? That's not fully understanding the implications of what, oh, I believe in the gospel, but you don't really understand. Maybe it's, you really don't understand the depth of your sin. You really don't understand the holiness of God. That could be in vain. You don't get it. Believing in vain could be you're just totally deceived by Satan or by sin. So there's a lot of ways that you can believe in vain. It means you made a profession, you claim to be a Christian, but you're really not. It didn't accomplish its purpose. Uh, and then in verse 3, For I delivered to you as a first importance. So here's the definition. What is the gospel? Here it is, people, verse 3 and 4. Where in the Bible, where is the only place in the Bible where we have the most simple, concise, and clear definition of the entire gospel in its most distilled form, where all the necessary components are there and things that are typically added are not there. It is right here, verse 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. This is the gospel. For I delivered... To you is of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So there's the, there's the five verses there on the content of the gospel. So let's go back and just kind of walk through uh, some highlights here, and then I may pick up on, I want to walk through real clearly just the contents of it so we are crystal clear, so just a couple more explanatory notes or preliminaries on that first word there, um, on the gospel of chapter 15, verse 1, the gospel. We know that that word gospel, it means good news, that's the literal Greek word, good news. And that's important. That always has to be in the forefront of our mind. The me it's a message. And it's a message about good news. So when we go preach the gospel like Jesus said to the world, we have a message of good news. It's a message of hope, right? It's not only a message of negativity or condemnation. Is there bad news in the message of the good news? Absolutely. Because it's real about the diagnosis of the human soul, which is sinful and lost and separated from God and doomed without God, headed for hell for all eternity from a, a judging God. A holy God, that's true. They need to know that. So we don't compromise on the truth. But overall, the message itself in its entirety is a message of hope and good news. That's what we preach. And that comes from that word gospel. So what does the word gospel mean? Good news. Speaking of the word gospel, just a little etymology. It's a compound word. In your English Bible, it's G-O-S-P-E-L, gospel. In the Greek text, it's actually two words put together. E-U, which is the prefix. That means good. That is not complicated because EU in English means good. Eulogy, E-U-L-O-G-Y. L-O-G-Y, words, logos, words, study of, words. EU means good, good words. Eulogy, those are good words you give at a memorial service. Euphoria, E-U, passions to feel good, you, and on and on. So there's all kinds of EU words in your English Bible, and that's at the root of the word gospel in your, in your Greek text. 
EU. Then the second word, so there's the prefix EU, it's added on to the word, the word for in English, which is angel. Angelos, where we get angel. But we get other words from it as well. What's an, what's an angel? An angel is a messenger. So that's, that's really where it comes from. Messenger, angelos, angelizo, the verb. A messenger, a messenger, a messenger. So it's a good message or a good messenger. That's the gospel, good news. What's a good message? Good news, that's what it means. Now, unfortunately, that word that makes so much sense in our Greek Bible, good news, was filtered through Latin in about 400, 500 A.D., because Latin is different than Greek and English, they tweaked the spelling, and instead of adding an E-U on the front, Latin added an E-V on the front. So they changed E-U to E-V. That's Latin. So it wasn't E-U angel anymore. It was E-V angel. And that's, why we, that's where we get evangelism from. So if we want to be biblical, it shouldn't be evangelism. It should be evangelism. I'm an evangelist. Let's go evangelize. If you wanted to be technical, and if it gets way rid of some of that confusion. But that's literally where the word comes from. A good message. A good message for the world. And if you look up the word gospel in your New Testament, you'll find it in the noun form, and you'll also find it in the verb form. In the noun form, about 76 different times, and in the verb form, about 61 different times. Uh, good news, and then as a verb, good newsed. When you tell somebody the good news, you good-newsed them, and that's the way it's used. A lot of times in the New Testament, when it's translated, even right here in 1 Corinthians 15, look at this, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Paul said, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, literally the good tidings, the good news, which I preached to you. See that word preach? That is not the Greek word for preach. It's actually uh, the word for gospel in a verb form. So literally it says, now I make known to you, brethren, the, the gospel which I gospeled to you. And that's how it's used many times in the New Testament. We good news people. Let's go out and do some good newsing to the neighbors. That sounds better than, let's go out and condemn our neighbors. Turn or burn. Which is a message that, unfortunately, some people who say they are Christians bring to lost people. Good news them. Now, as you look at the noun form and the verb form, just let me give you a summary here, and we'll pick up next time uh, on the rest of the details of the actual content of the gospel. But just this is an overview and survey of how the word gospel is used in your entire New Testament. You ready? I've got a few categories. First, it's benefits that imparts to people. There's a Bible verse for every single one of these, but I'm not going to mention it. But just here's what the New Testament says, or here's what it calls the gospel. It is the gospel of peace because it is the only thing that brings peace between sinner and a holy God. It is the gospel of truth. It is the gospel of hope. It is the gospel of light. It illuminates our understanding. It is the gospel of salvation. And it is the gospel that regenerates. Those are its benefits. Here's gospel descriptions of its origin. It is the gospel of God. It is the gospel of the kingdom. It is the gospel of Christ. It is the glorious gospel. And it is the eternal gospel. And that's all speaking of the same gospel, the same good news. Here's other phrases of how it is described, particularly by the Apostle Paul. It is, as a gospel, it is a report or message. Again, it's not something we do. That's the idea. It is a message. So it's, a, it's something we proclaim, we herald, we preach, we teach, we vocalize, we make it audible so people can hear it. It's not something we do. We don't do the gospel. We don't act the gospel. We don't live the gospel. We preach the gospel. As a matter of fact, that is the main verb in the New Testament for what we do with the gospel. It is preached. So it is a report. It is a mystery. It is a stewardship responsibility. It is revelation, meaning it's divine revelation directly from God. It is not according to man. Nobody made it up. Nobody invented it like the Greeks who invented their own wisdom. It is not of this world. It is out of this world. It is alien to our world. It came from no human intuition or thought or human experience. It came from God and directly from God and only from God. And God gave it directly to his messengers and to his apostles and particularly to the apostle Paul in terms of the mystery of the gospel. Directly from Jesus Christ. Divine revelation. Special revelation. Heavenly revelation. 
not natural theology. It's not according to man. It is, it is the power of God. It is the power of God for salvation. It is the only thing that gives the power that sinners might be saved. And then Paul says, here's things we need to do with the gospel as believers. What do we need to do? We defend the gospel. We minister the gospel. We serve the gospel. We labor in the gospel. We, say, we suffer for the gospel. We further the gospel. We advance the gospel. We testify to the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. We teach the gospel. And that number one verb, we preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. And then sinners are obligated to do the following regarding the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. If a sinner doesn't hear the gospel preached, that sinner cannot be saved. That's what Paul said in Romans 10. They need to hear the gospel. They need to believe in the gospel. They need to heed or obey the gospel. What does obey mean? Well, Paul tells us, he gives a synonym, belief. To obey the gospel is to submit to it, to accept it, to heed it, to believe it. And confess to the gospel. And unfortunately, some sinners reject the gospel. And those are the ones that are consigned to hell in judgment forever. And lastly, I'll close with this regarding a description. Is that, And I've already said it. That this gospel, this glorious gospel, this gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel and the only gospel. The only good news of truth and peace and hope in this life for every human. It is unique. It's a unique gospel to Christianity. It's a unique gospel to the Bible. This is the only place we can go to find its truth. And it is all about Jesus Christ. So next time, part two, we're going to complete this message and specifically break it down, break it down, focusing on two things. What is the gospel? It is a message, a finite message, a specific message, a message that came divinely from God. That is its origin, specifically intended for sinners, that they might be made right with God, their holy creator. And its focus is very simple. It is all about Jesus Christ. All about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. And that is Paul's emphasis in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. With that, let's go ahead and pray to our Father who entrusted this glorious gospel to the care of the church. Father, we thank you for our time together. What a blessed day to be with God's people by your design on the Lord's Day. Always remembering the Lord's Day that that is Resurrection Sunday. We're your beloved son, Jesus Christ, rose from the grave in fulfillment of Scripture to, as sign and proof and evidence that he is the God-man and that he accomplished what he came to do, conquering Satan, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering even eternal hell. And that he's alive. He reigns on high. He's risen from the dead. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the judge of the earth, the only Savior. The only one who deserves all glory and praise. Along with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you for this glorious gospel and giving it to humanity so that we might be adopted in your family. We thank you. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.